0: Any sufficiently advanced technology is indistinguishable from magic.
1: Professor Alan Lightman, a really uh, spectacular writer, thinker, an intellectual, and the author of so many wonderful books. I've read them all. And today, Alan, we're gonna talk about the book that most influenced me in my life. It's influenced millions of people around the world. I'm talking about a problem book in relativity and gravitation let's talk about that for the next hour shall we sure <laughs> that was uh it's actually one of my favorite books alan and and it's a little known book it's probably your least read book but it's it's one of my favorite books of all time it has a, a series of books but uh, problems in it but it's not written in a dry textbook style in fact it's mm-hmm. written in a style uh that i use to this very day and people ask me like how hard is it to generate uh gravitational waves and i say well read lightman's book and you too can generate gravitational waves when you're on the mass pike or in the i5 here in california just shake your fist out the window and i use that example i've never forgotten it in 25 30 years alan thank you so much for joining us uh how are you doing today in these in these wild times that we're enduring
0: um i'm doing okay um the world is not doing okay, but I'm doing okay. I, my wife is a painter and we live on a small island in Maine uh, during the summers. And so I'm there now looking out at some uh, wood path that goes down to the our dock and then the ocean is beyond that. So I'm I'm very, very privileged to be here.
1: Wow. That's uh, not a place, not a, not a terrible place to, uh, to be, you know, confined in in some sense. But, uh, but of course that, that theme runs through your book, uh, which I understand is being turned into a a movie. I wanted to get a quick update on that. What is the status of that wonderful book, which I've listened to and read as well? Uh, stars, uh, searching for stars on an island in Maine. What is the status of the movie adaptation?
0: Uh, well, uh, we, we have a, uh, a producer, uh, Jeffrey Haynes Stiles, who was the senior producer of the original Carl Sagan Cosmos series. We've we've uh, written and rewritten the script. We have uh, some associate producers who are camera people. We have a musician, uh, Zoe Keating, same last name as yours. She's a cellist, uh, and we've done everything except the filming. And uh, my first conversation will be with the Dalai Lama in one month.
1: In that book, you talk about explorations with uh, encounters with Buddhism and notions of time. And I think that theme runs through many of your books. Maybe we'll start there. Uh, one thing I've, I've noted, and it occurs in, in almost all of your books, I think, is the notion of the plank time. You know, the plank time appears in many of your books. I wonder what is it about the Planck time that's so interesting to you? Is it a fundamental, or is it kind of like uh, a coordinate singularity? It's kind of an accident of of um, you know just a coincidence of numbers, or is there something significant about it? You know, does does uh, motion really act jittery at at, at a fundamental level, or is it just an accident of some you know numbers that human beings use?
0: Well, I don't think it's an accident of numbers that human beings use, just like uh, the number of, of particles in a mole uh avogadro's number is is a real number. Um, the significance of the planck time is is that, that that's approximately the moment in the evolution of the universe where quantum gravity was important uh, that is the the merging of quantum physics with uh, general relativity um, uh quantum physics. Of course, uh, you know all of this, but I'm saying this for your guess. Quantum physics tells us how matter behaves at the subatomic level. Uh, and one of the, the characteristics that particles can be in two places at once, very, very strange. Uh, general relativity tells us how matter and energy change the flow of time and the geometry of space. And the two of them, are both important uh, at a particular early, early, early moment of the universe uh, when it was about 10 to the minus 43 seconds old. And the reason why that's significant is because that is probably the earliest moment where we can speak about time and space. That uh, at that moment uh, when both gravity and quantum physics were working together when the whole universe was smaller than the size of an atom, that uh, time did not behave as we know it today. That is, it, it went forwards and backwards and jittered around space. The geometry of space was constantly fluctuating. And uh, it, uh, if there was any moment in the early universe when you can say that the time and space began it would be at the Planck time, so it's not just a coincidence of of numbers. I think if we if we could contact uh, intelligent beings elsewhere in the universe who were at least as advanced as as us in science, they they would know about the, the Planck time.
1: Uh, and of course, Planck famously said that science advances one funeral at a time. What? Do you feel that uh spirituality advances one funeral at a time in the same way do you, in other words do you think we, you know we almost have to wait for you know uh, hopefully it'll be many years in the future for the dalai lama or you know the einsteins or or the the people that uh, the spinozas so to speak to 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 pass on before we can have the paradigm shift in spirituality or in these kind of existential questions that you like to consider or are they totally different
0: I think they're totally different uh science i i think it is a is a vertical progress uh that is uh each uh new theory which replaces an older theories is a closer approximation to nature uh whether or not there's an ultimate theory that needs no revision scientists disagree about that and we're talking mainly physics here uh so when Planck said that science progresses one funeral at a time, he means that that a theory is, uh, is supported for a number of years until it's found to conflict with experiment, and then it's replaced by a new theory, which is supported for a number of years until it's found to conflict with experiment. But each successive rung on the ladder is a better approximation to nature. Whereas I think that... Uh, The spirituality, and I would include in that uh, all of the arts and humanities along with spirituality, is more of a horizontal uh, endeavor. That is, uh, Plato's ideas about the best kind of government and about what constitutes good and evil are still as valid today as they were 2,000 years ago. And so... Uh, I don't Mm -hmm. think that, uh, and I think that the the, the Buddha's ideas about spirituality and that the cause of suffering is is attachment to things and too much involvement with, with our own ego, I think that that's just as valid an insight today as it was 2,500 years ago.
1: What do you make of the the fact that great men um, in science in theology, even sometimes are not the greatest uh fathers or not the greatest you know husbands or not the greatest you know mentors? Einstein himself, as you know, was not a great husband or father um, you know the Dalai Lama obviously is not a father. I once heard him quoted i've met him personally he's a wonderful man um, and uh, I once heard him quoted. You know, somebody asked him, you know, uh, your Holiness, um if your brother were to die, would you not be sad? And he said, "I would try not to be sad. Um, I don't think I would be. you know, I would try to be detached. I have three brothers, um they give me a lot of trouble. <laughs> we fight, uh, I have uh, you know, I have sons. I can't imagine being so detached, and I can't imagine having a full life. A life devoid of suffering, as I know, Buddhism seeks to be. I'm Jewish, by the way. I'm a practicing Jew, but but the point is, how do you how do you reconcile these great minds with the fact that many of them were kind of, I don't want to say schmucks as fathers, and I'm not including the Dalai Lama, but Einstein was certainly not a great well, father, and yeah. uh, and 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 that's been well documented. You no. know, how do you reconcile these these great men with great flaws? Is it necessary,
0: yeah. or is it you know uh, just a correlation? And, and I'm Jewish also, and and Wagner the great composer, was an anti-Semite, as, as was T.S. Eliot. So um, I think that, uh, that, that these are, are perpendicular aspects of human nature. Um, that is, the, the, the part of our DNA that codes for uh, creativity, imagination, intelligence, talent, I think it's a different part of our DNA that controls for our character and our uh, values and our behavior. So there's no reason why these two, why these things should be correlated, why they should have anything to do with each other. And there are people who have made brilliant contributions to, to music, to literature, to science, who are, you and I would call them, uh, decent honorable human beings, and there are also people who have contributed to to art and literature and science that you and I would consider to be uh, horrible human beings. Uh, So there's no reason to expect a a correlation as far as I'm concerned. Mm
1: Mm-hmm. And uh, yeah, I certainly view that. And also, you know, Carl Sagan, who was, you know, a- ethnically, biologically Jewish. I think he was a great father. And obviously, you know, it's not a prerequisite that you're uh, practicing in any way. Uh, he was a, actually had his w- widow, Andrurian, and I had his daughter on the show uh, last year. It was quite delightful. Um, I want to ask you uh, a little bit more about Einstein. But before I do, I want to ask you about uh, the, your, your, the current book, The, the Role of Ego. That is, uh, that is played throughout the book and I think – or that is demonstrated throughout the book, at least in the character of Andre Linde, who plays a role in my story, uh, the story of BICEP2, the story of inflation, Art. chaotic inflation. And you look at this remarkable individual and you, and you sort of talk about him as the man you know, who comes closest to grasping infinity uh, in the modern application of chaotic inflation. Uh, you say of him, and I quote: "It's a beautiful kind of uh, of, of passage. Uh, you know that he has this this uh, this this healthy ego, and it is it is something that that drives him. But it is um, you know he has come up with the most expansive concept of spatial infinity. And you compare him not." you know, disfavorably with, with the great, you know, an and, and, and so forth. And I'm not disputing that, but, um, but how do you reconcile these kinds of things with, with the type of science that he does, which you admit may not be falsifiable. And and, and we'll talk about that as a rubric for, for, for science in a minute, but, but how do you balance that kind of ego that it takes to do great novel science with the humility that you have to have that nature may never afford you the opportunity to be proven wrong?
0: Well, I don't think it requires humility to think that you might be proven wrong um, uh i I think that you can be a great scientist and either be humble or arrogant. I think that again, you know going back to whether you can uh be uh a talented person and and not be uh morally good. I think it's the same thing that I've I've known great scientists who are arrogant and I've known great scientists who are humble. Uh but it certainly does not take require humility to to do science. Uh I uh you might remember that that when uh we're speaking of Einstein Einstein now that when his theory of 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 Gravity, general relativity predicted that light would be deflected by the gravity of the sun or any massive body, which which is not true in in newton's theory, earlier theory, and uh, the British scientist Arthur Eddington went uh, to test that during an eclipse to measure that and uh, sent a telegram to Einstein saying that that his prediction of his theory was confirmed. Um, and I think someone asked Einstein what he would have done if the experimental result had disagreed with this theory. And his respl- response was, then I would have felt sorry for the dear Lord because the theory is right.
1: <laughs> That's right. <laughs> And uh, you know that brings me to my uh, t- to another theme of today's conversation, which is you know the proliferation of that three-letter word "God" uh, that appears so often in uh, various regimes in physics, but specifically in cosmology and particle physics. You know, Alan, uh, I don't know about MIT, but you know, I, n- I never noticed you know in the condensed matter you know uh, uh, experimentalist hallway, you know, I never noticed them talking about the you know the God instanton, or or the yeah, the superconductor God, or you know it's right. always in the in in you know the God equation. Right. It's always in the God particle. The theory right. of everything is the gut mind of God, according to Stephen Hawking. What is it about our friends and 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 some of my best friends are string theorists, right? That that gives this imprimatur, By the way, do you think they really believe? I had Michio Kaku on the show. Uh, he claims to be agnostic. I really think he's. Functionally indistinguishable from an atheist in other words he yeah. doesn't go to the same church that richard dawkins doesn't go to uh, he was raised buddhist he uh became or no his parents were buddhist he was raised episcopalian uh presbyterian or episcopalian i can't remember which one but um but now you know he just he doesn't practice and he kind of believes in the spinoza god of einstein uh mm. but you know i kind of view that as, as almost a cop-out and i taught freeman dyson that as well in our many conversations what do you make of this? And, and you're a humanist, and 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 you talk about that uh, quite frequently. But um, you know, sometimes they view that as kind of like a shorthand. Like I don't want to commit uh, when they say they're agnostic. Um, is that just like a safe way of 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 not having to commit to to being an atheist, uh, so that maybe you know the, that won't impact book sales, as Stephen Hawking's editor used to say? Or do they really not believe, or not have enough evidence to say one way or another that God doesn't
0: exist? Yeah. Well, of course, I don't know what's in the mind of, of uh, Michiko Kaku or uh, Freeman Dyson. Um, I don't know what's in their minds uh, when they say they're agnostics. So, but, but I would speculate that they're atheists, as, as I think you are suggesting. And, of course, in, in the, the world that we live in today... Um, it, uh, it's, it's unpleasant, uh, socially to say that you're an atheist. Uh, and R- Richard Dawkins, of course, has made his name on saying that it's an atheist. And I don't agree with much of what he does, not because I think his arguments are wrong, but, but I think that he is condescending and dismissive, of uh, believers and, uh, so I, I respect people who, who believe in God. Uh, I have many, many friends who are quite smart and talented and creative who believe in God, and I totally respect that. Um, but I, I do think that, that many people who say that they're agnostic are really atheists and they're just trying to be polite, and that's my speculation. mm-hmm um
1: one thing that is in hebrew the the term is ain Sof, without end is is god himself and god is the only entity without without uh uh spatial extent without temporal extent uh, without pre-existing creator. And again, mm. uh, I consider myself, this isn't about me, the show, but I consider myself a practicing agnostic, <laughs> you know, in that I am searching, I'm looking, I'm not ruling out, but I'm also not, you know, uh, I am, I am not, I don't wear yarmulke. I don't, uh, I keep mm. kosher, etc. But I, I think if you tell somebody from the beginning that there's no God as Dawkins does, you establish, as you say, dismissiveness, divisiveness, and you might even undermine your own case against atheism, you know, for atheism. Um, And I think Hitchens and others did a much
0: better job. Um, Well, Well, Dawkins not only says there's no God, but he says that people who believe in God are stupid. Part ways with him on that.
1: Yeah, and he also said things. You know, if you raise your child as a Christian, it's like child abuse because no one's born a Christian. Yeah. Anyway, we we don't talk about him. But in wow. in Judaism, uh, there's a notion of 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 you know God as this infinite being. And in your conversation in a probable and probabilities, you talk with Linde about infinity. Now, one thing I've had uh, a lot of discussions. Uh, for example, Sir Roger Penrose. I'll put a link to it somewhere in the in the screen here. Uh, is about you know the notion of singularity and that. We're always told we need a, a theory of quantum gravity because the singularity in a black hole or at the origin of time in the Big Bang, uh, which he doesn't believe in, as you know, um, uh, features this kind of cha- transition from infinite temperature, infinite density, infinite uh, pressure to something finite. But I don't know of a single phenomenon in nature that is infinite. I know of things in math that are infinite but I don't know of any physical process that can transition from infinity to, to finite. And he gives you an answer in the book that's reminiscent, as you quote, uh, uh, very astutely, as you know, you know Hilbert Hotel, which we'll put a little diagram, you know, people checking in and checking out, uh, but um, yeah. but he doesn't really answer the question, uh, which you posed, but I think it's a very good one. Have you ever gotten a good answer to that question of how do you get from, you know, Zeno has asked this question in a different form 2,500 years ago. How do you get from an infinite quantity of something to a finite quantity of something in a finite time? Does anyone have an answer to that?
0: Well, you're you're not when when cosmologists talk about uh the infinity of uh, 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 spatial infinity uh what what they mean is that you could go get into a spaceship that went uh at the speed of light or even faster uh well we can't go faster and you, you and and you would never come back to where you started um, that the universe is 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 finite um, eventually you would come back to where you started if you could if you could freeze it at a given moment um so I don't think the question of going from from infinite to finite ever comes up in that kind of understanding of what's meant by cosmologists we're we're not uh. Each thing within the universe is finite, but if you got into a spaceship and and traveled, you know, at the speed of light, you would, you would keep going and keep going and keep going and keep seeing new things. Um, uh, Except for uh, the, the the fact that uh, discovered in 1998, that the universe appears to be accelerating, so you would, you, there would be a limit to how far you could get um, in terms of seeing new things. But uh, if you could freeze the universe right now so that it was not expanding, not accelerating, just freeze it, then if you got in a spaceship and went at the speed of light, you would never come back to where you started. You would just keep seeing New galaxies, new things. And that's what the what is what the cosmologists mean by a universe is infinite and extent. So so I I think that we don't have to worry about how to go from the infinite to the finite.
1: Lindy himself has been, been uh, remarkable, you know, maybe it's the uh, you know, it's this, it's this indomitable Russian spirit and, and, uh, which I love yeah, uh, and have always been enamored of, um, as a, as a Russian file. Fo- My wife was asking me yesterday, how do you say, you know, there's like Sinophile and there's, you know, Japanophile, but is there a word for Russianophile? I don't know. Maybe, you know, but, um, but at some level, you know, these Russians have this preternatural, you know, gift for, for confidence. And I remember a debate that he had with Martin Reese and Steven Weinberg and they were talking about the multiverse. And they were saying, you know, what level of credulity and confidence do you have? Would you bet your life? Would you bet your dog, uh, right. et cetera? Mm-hmm. And, you know, and the, the famous joke is that, you know, Linde would bet uh, Martin Martin Reese, who's been on my podcast, and he said he'd bet his dog. And uh, Linde said he'd bet uh, his his life. And Weinberg said he'd bet uh, both his life and, uh, I mean, he'd bet Lin, Linde's life and, and Reese's dog um, on the existence of the multiverse. Um, you know, and I, I, I did a video once about this and, and the nation, nature of faith and, and to what level do you really have to have faith? And, and you end the book and you end that that chapter about, you know, it is kind of this most beautiful and kind of the closest we get to, you know, the improbability of infinity and and so forth. But, you know, at what point do we, do we really let the beauty of equations substitute for, you know, evidence? And, and you speak about Dirac's God, you know, the only time Dirac ever mentions God, you quote in the book, you say, you know, God is a mathematician of a very good order. Um, and that's the only time Dirac ever talked about God. You mentioned that in the book. Um, and so, and he also said, it's more important that your theories be beautiful than they be, you know, subject to experimental verification. <laughs> so I guess Linde and him would get along well. But, you know, what's your opinion, Alan? Do, should we, yeah. you know, re, are we relying too much on Popper? Are we are we putting too much faith in the paparazzi, as my friend Leonard Susskind says? the
0: the the desire for beauty and our laws of nature has has turned out to be an excellent guide to finding the right laws. So so just on a practical basis, it's worthwhile for people like Dirac. Uh, Paul Dirac, to, uh, and, and uh, Ed Witten uh, with string theory, to look for beautiful mathematics. That has paid off in the past as a practical matter. But science ultimately is an experimental enterprise. And ultimately, any theory, no matter how beautiful, if it conflicts with experiment, has to be Discarded, and uh, a prime example of that was uh, something called parity conservation, which is the idea, and this was very prevalent in the 1920s, 30s, and 40s, that everything that you see in a mirror exists in nature. Uh, When you look in a mirror, you you reverse right hand and left hand, and the the statement of parity conservation is that the right-handed Things that there are an equal number of right-handed things and left-handed things in nature; uh, that the mirror image of nature also exists. In other words, and it's a very pretty idea. That is, why should nature have a handedness? Why should things, more things, be right-handed than left-handed? Uh, and uh, as you know, in the nineteen fifties, I think it was, uh, there were some experiments done. That showed that nature, in fact, does distinguish between right-handed and left-handed, that that the mirror image of nature does not exist in the same quantity, and that this beautiful idea is wrong. So, so then everybody had to go back to the drawing board and start revising their theories to agree with this new inconvenient fact. <clears throat> and... Uh, You know, even Einstein, uh, despite his statement about the the bending of light, I think did put a lot of stock into an experiment and even suggested some experiments of his own. Uh, So uh, it's true that today theoretical physics has sort of backed itself into a corner where we believe in, in these things like the multiverse and string theory that have uh, beautiful aspects to them. And of course, string theory is very beautiful mathematically, even though I don't understand all the mathematics of it. Uh, But we have to be willing to discard those things if they're experimentally proven wrong. The problem is, the rub is, that we will probably never be able to prove string theory wrong, and we'll probably never be able to prove the multiverse wrong. Will probably never be able to test those ideas. Mm-hmm. And that's where the real problem comes. Um, and then you have to ask the question: if we're if we're doing things in science that we can't test, if we have theories that we can't test, is that really science or is it theology or philosophy? And you know, we can debate on that question.
1: Mm-hmm.
0: If, That gets into the the question of what is science?
1: My uh, theme, and I can't resist putting in one sound effect if my listeners will indulge me, I'll put in a baseball sound effect here, Alan. And that is, I think it's very important to get points on the board. And uh, I talked to your crosstown rival, Kamran Vafa, last year. And I said, you know, tell me a falsifiable prediction that string theory could have been wrong. And he said, well, string theory has a prediction that the mass of the electron should be essentially it was, you know, a couple thousand or million times greater than the Planck mass or, you know, less than the Planck mass and a couple of billion times less than the Planck. You know, so some range that's pretty big, you know, the Planck mass is pretty large. Um, but, but anyway, it was a prediction. It was a wide range. It was like me saying, you know, I weigh less than, you know, 80 tons and greater than a microgram. You know, which after COVID, you know, I, I put on the, you know, the COVID ninety. No, no, I haven't put on quite that much. But my my viewers will note, notice uh, undoubtedly some gain in my in my girth. But. Uh, but nevertheless, I saluted him because, Alan, it was putting points on the board. It was showing something yeah. that could have been wrong. It could have said, you know, it's greater than the Planck mass, and then you could just rule out string theory, right? Um, on the other hand, you have people like Kaku um, who will say, well, the g minus two anomaly, you know, that's uh, that was, you know, that's a prediction of string theory. I said, really? I don't recall anybody, you know, uh, a month ago saying, don't worry, next week this result's going to come out, even though. Brookhaven had the results 22 years ago. Nobody did that, and he said, "No, no, no. You have to tell me the um, the initial vacuum conditions of string theory. Then I can tell you which uh, instantiation of the string theory uh, um, um, you know landscape is." And I said, "That's not my responsibility." And he said, "Well, how many you know how many uh, solutions to Maxwell's equations are there?" Yeah. I said, "There's an infinite number, but we have boundary conditions from observation." And so my right. my imprecation, you know, to string theorists is look for the low energy limits, look for the ways to connect with observations that you already have. I mean, you know, when people tell me they need a future, you know, hadron collider, you know, squared, I say, well, you know what you do have that, you know, that God or or, you know, the multiverse has given you. It's given you this this collider that takes these thirty solar mass you know black holes and crashes them together at half the speed of light. You know what's wrong with that? Can you do something with that to test your theory of everything and and usually they say no
0: say that one of the problems with string theory is that that there are a zillion different possibilities or vacuum states to use your language to start off from so they're t- ten to the five hundred power or something like that, and so that's one of the reasons why yes. I can't make any any predictions because there are too many possibilities uh and and maxwell's equations there's only one set of equations so that the, the two are not comparable in any way hmm um going back to
1: your uh, crosstown rival at, at harvard um uh the late great stephen j gould used to speak about non-overlapping magisteria. He used right. to say that religion and science were separate, you know, but equal. I want to apply that to writing and science, and you do both exceptionally well. Um, should we view those as non-overlapping magisteria? I usually say to my friends, you know, I, I joke around, I say it's, it should be a moral obligation <laughs> to communicate science if we get paid by the public alan i feel that you know people should do what you do you know and communicate to the public whether for profit or for you know to write and think in public because without the public you wouldn't be able to do what you do i wouldn't be able to do what i do and so not giving back in a way the public can understand they can't pick up prd uh, and understand it so what do you feel about that is there a noma aspect uh that well no you're good at science just stay in your lane Or should we be encouraging young people to do what you do so well at MIT? Should that be a model for the rest of the world to adopt, including here in San Diego and elsewhere?
0: Well, I think that there should definitely be some scientists who communicate with the public and explain science well to the public and write about it uh, in not only a a factual, accurate way, but in in a literary way. But I don't think that all scientists need to do that. Um, you know, if, 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 if every scientist wrote a popular book, nobody would have time to read them all or even a small fraction of them. So I think it's efficient for the community of scientists to produce an, uh, several people who are writing about science for the public. But it's certainly not a moral responsibility for every person to to do that that's that's my view. when i say every person i mean every mm-hmm. scientist i certainly think that that every scientist should mm-hmm. be sympathetic to this activity and there was a time in the early 1970s when uh very few bona fide scientists were writing about science uh lewis thomas and stephen jay gould in the area of biology um let's see uh Jim Watson and uh, Richard Feynman uh, in the areas, uh, well, Jim Watson is biology, Richard Feynman and Steve Weinberg in in physics. uh, There was a period of time then where where writing, for a scientist to write about about science for the general public was considered a a waste of time. It was, uh, you were looked down upon as a scientist, by right. uh, the scientific community. Um, I think that that era has passed. Uh, I do think that, that every mm-hmm. scientist should respect those people who are spending part of their time, or even all of their time, writing about science and talking about science for the public.
1: hmm yeah, and certainly, uh, you know, sounds like you were also influenced very much by Carl Sagan, who you met, uh, I understand, at Cornell during yeah. a sabbatical you had uh, for a couple of years. Um, he was a great influence. I regret never having met him, but um, but he was a huge influence. And I, I do know his, his widow has been on the show and his daughter has mm-hmm. been on the show. Mm-hmm. He's a great uh, influence. And of course, I think he was unfairly penalized for outreach, um, famously not getting into the national academy despite his incredible scientific output creating you know new fields astrobiology and and so forth and mm-hmm. not the least of which was his outreach to the public that reached billions in a way that even neil degrasse tyson who's in some ways a uh, protege of his who's also been on the show i'll put a link to his episode somewhere around here. Um, I want to get to, because uh, I know you only have an, another 10 or so minutes. <clears throat> I want to talk about a book that made a huge impact on my life uh, when it came out in 1993. I was just a beginning graduate student and that's Einstein's Dreams. Uh, and that is a, a wonderful, delightful uh, fantasy book. And, and that's so, you know, just I remember reading i was like how can a professor at mit write a book like that and I, I wonder first of all if you're familiar with the works of mit graduate um uh jana levin and and her wonderful books uh her fictional books uh you know that she seems to be kind of in that mold of, of like yeah, super competent, also, you know, a relativist like you, <laughs> um, you know, what is it about the, you know, the water on that side of the Cambridge, uh, river, <laughs> uh, that, that gave you the liberty to kind of write a fantasy, a, a book about, uh, these different modalities, uh, these different ways that time can manifest itself and, and which, uh, you know, what, what gave you the confidence to do that? You, you were, you know, this is 30 years ago, almost now, uh, what gave you the confidence to write that book at that time in your career?
0: Yeah, well, that book didn't come out of nowhere. Uh, I mean, as a child, I was interested in writing and science both. And I wrote a lot of poetry as a child. Um, So um, I was interested in in trying to somehow pursue a career in both the arts and the sciences from a young age. Uh, So I was was writing and publishing poetry in, in small magazines in the 1970s and early 80s and I began writing essays about science in the early 1980s. And uh, as I wrote more essays, I began uh, twisting them to include fictional elements. The the essay is a very flexible literary form. You can be informative, you can be poetic, you can be personal. Uh, And I began putting fictional elements into the essays that I was writing Uh, And eventually, uh, that led to Einstein's dreams. So there was a long runway for Einstein's dreams. Um, The the runway started when I was uh, 12 years old. It it didn't have anything to do with being at MIT. Uh, It just had to do with with my longstanding interest in both the sciences and the arts and in philosophy. I've always been interested in philosophy, uh, when I was in college, I was debating about whether to major in philosophy or physics. I took a lot of philosophy courses and uh, philosophical ideas have entered into all of my writing, uh, which is, uh, I, th- I think it's apparent in in the book Einstein's Dreams. And I have a question
1: um, from my audience about that wonderful book. Uh, And it relates to uh, a a topic that we had discussed earlier, and that's Sir Roger Penrose's past guest, Nobel laureate, um, a past guest on the show of his conformal cyclic cosmology. There's a lovely quote, and this is from James R., one of my listeners. Uh, There's a lovely quote in Einstein's dreams, which made me wonder. Suppose time is a circle bending back on itself. The world Mm -hmm. repeats itself precisely, endlessly what do you think about um sir roger penrose's ideas and and um obviously those came out actually afterwards you talk about his ideas later in this kind of ouroboros uh in other books that you've written but um what do you think about his ideas now uh 22 years uh, 28 years after <laughs> uh, einstein's dreams uh, have you you know if you wrote einstein's dreams too, would uh, sir roger penrose Well I it wasn't itself?
0: aware that that penrose was advocating a cif- cyclical universe um i'm 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 aware of his work in cosmology and I'm aware of his his of his book the emperor's New Mind in which he says that 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 uh, that mental phenomena have have a quantum mechanical element to them but I don't know anything about his advocacy of a cyclical universe uh, I, I know' it's his 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 work on twisters yeah he's uh, a real he, he's he's a he's a a phenomenon i mean he's he's one of a kind he's he's one of the you know maybe the greatest mathematical physicists in the last century
1: yeah he's uh he is a phenomenon he turns 90 this august i'm uh delighted to be able to speak at his uh birthday party virtually he's become a friend um so his model I, i'll i'll put links to the you know to the interviews i've done with him up here in the video when it comes out um, his his model came up really in contrast to André Linde and the work of inflation, which he views as, you know, I, I guess I can't imitate him, uh, but as is, is a form of, you know, rubbish, as the British might say, in that, you know, this this spawning of the multiverse, at least in spatial infinity, uh, is very problematic. And as, you know, he has said, and my friend Paul Steinhardt has said, you know, is undermining of the scientific method in that it basically makes you know, falsification and, and the 400-year-old practice of science dating back to Galileo, you know, impractical and and uh, and so forth. We don't have to get into that. We've already spoken about it. But he has these unending cycles that he calls aeons uh, 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 during which the very low entropy conditions of the universe can be um, gobbled up and, and the universe can be started off cyclically um, without a bang, without a singularity, um, and it can repeat many times over. And he claims there's evidence for it. I've actually uh, fought with him about the evidence that he claims is kind of confirmation bias, um, and that's kind of fun to do to to, to challenge somebody who himself is an iconoclastic um, character challenging yeah. the dominant orthodoxy. I want to ask you, uh, getting back to Einstein's dreams, what of those uh, many scenarios of time, of, of 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 universes, of different ways that things can play out? Um, how did you know which one kind of resonates with you? For me, as a parent, it's impossible not to think about the universes. You know, where 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 you know children and parents are interacting in these ways. Either there there's a barrier and they cannot interact, and there's there's a mournfulness and there's there's a there's a soul in that book. It's so painful, and I couldn't have appreciated that, Alan, as as I didn't as a as a twenty-one year old graduate student, and now I do reading it again. It's so delightful. By the way, if you're an Audible member, um, and I hope someday Audible will hear this and and sponsor me. But anyway, (laughs) uh, but you can listen to it for free. um, It's on Audible, I believe, if you're an Audible member. So I urge people, if you've read it already, please read it again. Listen to it again. I think Alan will get the uh, residuals no matter what you do. But but the bottom line is it's such a delightful book. But are any of those more resonant with you now as an author? I know as a reader, many of them resonate more with me now than they did 30 years ago almost. Do any of them resonate more with you as, as the author 30 years hence?
0: Well, there's some of them that resonate more with me as a human being. And those are the, the worlds in which we try to live in the present. The present moment is important. And I think that, that since I've written that book 30 years ago, uh, since that, we've had the, the advance of the Internet, uh, smartphones, Google, all of those things have come about since I wrote that book. and And it's made the world faster and faster. Uh, the speed of the, the pace of life has always been regulated by the speed of communication. and as commu- communication has gotten faster and faster and faster and faster. In, in 1985, near the beginning of the internet, is it was about a thousand bits per second. And now it's a billion bits per second is the speed at which we can transmit information. And we we just we just rush around far more than is healthy for us, checking off items on our to-do list. And uh, we 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 cut down our efficient use of time to, to 10 minute units of efficiency. You know, if it takes your printer more than a minute. To, to spit out five page, pages, you get impatient. <laughs> if, you to wait in, if you have to wait in a doctor's office longer than 10 minutes, you get impatient. So we we, we need time to slow down. I mean, we need the, the permission to slow down and and just pay attention to where we are at the moment and what's happening at the moment. I think the pandemic has helped mm. a little bit in that regard because it's forced a lot of people to slow down. But looking back on that book now, 30 years ago, the, the worlds in which the moment is precious are the worlds that, that are most meaningful to me now.
1: Yeah, and me too. I get emotional thinking about it, Alan. Um I you know, also having young kids, a little bit older kids, you know, intermediate kids, uh, listening to it and I'm guilt I feel so guilty telling you this, but when I listen to it the second time, I listen to it at two X speed. And I, I, I knew you'd probably be mad at me, but but on the other hand, I can listen to it two or three times and I can I can jump around and, and I and I just feel like um it's such a gift that you gave to the world. Um you're also giving permission to to geeky nerdy physicists and you know the joke about scientists how do you know a scientist is outgoing because he looks at your shoes when he talks to you um and, and most of my audience are brilliant and they they love it but it's a book that a, a real scientist <laughs> a real scientist can get into and you can grapple with these notions of causality of reality it's an, an, but you'll also be, um, uh, it's a literary gift. And, and I want to thank you. I, I've wanted to tell you that for nigh on 30 years since I was a graduate student, but I appreciate it more as a parent and being mindful and thinking about meditation, but also listening to it at 2x speed. Anyway, Alan, I want uh, we only have a few more minutes. I want to ask you the questions. I ask all my guests from billionaires and brainiacs to uh, Nobel Prize winners, uh, MIT professors. I think MIT and Harvard are battling it out, uh, along with UCSD, for the most frequent uh, university, uh, employees to grace my, uh, my show and be and honor me with their presence. Um, so Alan, I sent you the questions. If you're willing yes. to answer them, I would be so honored. Uh, yes. And some of them, one of them relates to the title of your book. So that'll be the last one. First one is, um, a question I ask my guest and that is what would you put on your ethical, not in your material will, your ethical will, what wisdom or values do you most want to articulate to future generations as an inheritance? And it is some piece of wisdom that you'll give to your biological heirs, but also to your ideological heirs, of which I consider myself one.
0: Do unto others as you would have them do unto you. I think that uh, religions uh, differ greatly and and their values and morals but i think most agree on that i think that that statement first appeared in isaiah in the old testament and that would be what i would pass on that's funny
1: you're the um you're you're not the first uh secular humanistic jew to quote uh from the old testament the tanakh uh one of the first was andrurian who quoted from mika and she said act justly love mercy and walk humbly but she admitted the last three words with god. your god and uh and we laughed about that but uh, <laughs> uh but that's okay uh that's okay okay the next question has to do with a great scientist and communicator uh very much reminiscent of you alan and that is arthur c clark not a jew Nobody's perfect. I'm just kidding. I'm just kidding. I'm just kidding. Um, What material object or knowledge would you put on or in your monolith? So you've probably seen in Arthur C. Clarke's 2001, A Space Odyssey, there are these monoliths that are built by extraterrestrial species, which are eventually discovered in the solar system. Uh, And this is not too dissimilar from Feynman's cataclysm question. So what, Thing would you put on a monolith, a billion year time capsule to be discovered that's to be an emblematic representation of what humanity achieved?
0: Well, I wouldn't, I would not put any of our mathematics and science because I would assume that that would be known uh, by other civilizations. Uh, I would put some of our art and I would put uh some of Beethoven's symphonies uh, in there because, because. Uh, the artistic expression of a civilization is unique Uh, and I would put music because it does not require Mm. a language uh, to translate it so um, I would put some of Beethoven's symphonies on there I'm I'm, I'm, uh, particular about symphony number nine I think or maybe the Moonlight Mm. but that's what I would put in the time capsule
1: Wonderful, and uh, yes, I when I asked Anjuri in that she said, "Oh, I already did that with the Voyager Golden Disk." <laughs> she put her brainwaves on it along with uh, world world music. So that was the first example of world music in human history being yeah. recorded. So I hope ET can understand a phonograph okay the last one relates to probable impossibilities and that is sir arthur c clark's third law which states the only way of discovering the limits of the possible is to venture a little way past them into the impossible i thought you'd like that that's the origin of the name of this podcast alan what aspect of life seemed mysterious and maybe even impossible to you uh but now that you've had uh the benefit of life and experience you tell that young version of yourself to give you the courage to go into the impossible.
0: I haven't thought about this one. Um, Well, I think something that, that, uh, that I couldn't imagine when I was a young person was being a parent, make, making a baby with another person, and then being a parent. Uh, I think as much as we read about that and talk to other people, that we don't really understand what that is until it happens. Uh, it's, it's, of course, your, your parent mm-hmm. mentioned that here, but it's, it's one of the most glorious aspects of, of living. Uh, of course, people who don't have children uh, often have good reasons for that. So I'm not, uh, you know, discounting that decision. Uh, but that's something that I couldn't possibly imagine when I was a young person.
1: Yeah. But as you already said, even if you don't have parent, even if you don't aren't a parent and don't have children, you can still pass on your values, your wisdom. Um, to ideological uh, errors. Alan, I want to thank you so much for being uh, a, a mentor remotely to me, whether you wanted to or not. Thank you so much and have a wonderful rest of your day.
0: Thank you, Brian. Thanks for inviting me and having me on here. Any sufficiently advanced technology is indistinguishable from magic. Thanks for listening to Into the Impossible with Professor Brian Keating. Please support the show by rating, commenting, sharing, and leaving reviews. We appreciate hearing from you, and it really helps keep our universe expanding. Watch our YouTube channel at Dr. Brian Keating, that's D R Brian Keating, and join our premieres Tuesdays at 8 a.m. Pacific Time. Follow Brian on Twitter and Medium, and support us on Patreon at Dr. Brian Keating. For exclusive content, visit Brian Keating's website and sign up for his informative newsletter at briankeating.com. Into the Impossible is produced with the Arthur C. Clark Center for Human Imagination in the Division of Physical Sciences at the University of California, San Diego. Produced by Stuart Valko and Brian Keating.